Please, if you will, turn to chapter 9 of the book of Revelation. And there we'll read about these foreboding woes that were spoken about as we closed the message last week there in chapter 8. The last verse of chapter 8 is verse 13 where there is an eagle flying, crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly over their heads, crying out, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. You recall there were seven angels. Four of them had blown their trumpets and and very difficult things had taken place. And now there are three more, the last three. And according to this warning, there are great woes to be poured out upon the people of the earth. So there in chapter 9, we're going to read all of that all the way through. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Did you notice something that was said there in that verse? Here a star falls from heaven, and then the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. So this was not a physical star. It was a person, a demon. It says that he had fallen to the earth, so we know it's a demon. So verse 2, he, the demon, opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now notice two things in those last couple of verses. These demons that have come up out of the bottomless pit, they can only do what God gives them permission to do. They were given the power to sting like scorpions. And then they were instructed by God not to hurt any of the grass of the earth or any of the green things nor any tree but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And notice there too that there are only two sides left. They were instructed to only hurt the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So you have two groups of people left on the earth by this time. Those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead and on their hands, the 666. But you also have those who have become believers and they will have what is called here the seal of God on their foreheads. And so as these scorpions are coming out there to sting and to really harm the people of the earth, standing side by side with those who will be stung by these scorpions are people who have the mark of God on their foreheads and they'll not be harmed at all. God will separate that out. He is controlling all that's taking place. Verse 5, And they, this was the scorpions, they were not permitted to kill anyone 
but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. I've been stung by a scorpion before and I'm sure that this sting is far worse than what I received. Verse 7, the appearance of the locusts, listen to this, the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron (coughs) and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. And they have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now note in those words also that this is a carefully planned, scripted battle plan on the part of God. Listen how carefully he planned it. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released and they would kill a third of mankind. God has this portion of the battle and every portion of the battle planned right down to the hour. Not just the day or the month or the year. Right down to the hour. Verse 16, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire, and of hyacinth, and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. And the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads. And with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murderers, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their threats. There is so much imagery that's given to us in these words. It's often been said by preachers who preach on these words of the book of Revelation that the Apostle John must have been just completely overwhelmed by all the imagery that was before him 
all the many mysterious manifestations and appearances of the creatures and the events that he witnessed there in his time there in heaven. And I agree. He had a first century mind. And there were not a lot of the things in place that we have today. And so he wasn't at all accustomed to the visions that were coming before him. Now yes, the Holy Spirit was enabling John to have some measure of understanding. And the Holy Spirit surely did guide every word that's written here. But still, by the time these words, these descriptions reach our human minds, you and I, I know we struggle to envision exactly what John's eyes were seeing there. Thankfully, things that are described here, flying objects of all kinds, they could be airplanes and missiles and bombs and even asteroids and meteorites. We're accustomed to that kind of thing. And so it would be a little more understandable for us, but again, not for John. Now the simple truth that we gain from reading these words is that while you and I may not know or even need to know exactly what these visages really are, as with these locusts spoken about here, if they are just some visual presentation of demons, or as some commentators argue, that they are military weapons of that day or of our day now, or something else. The real truth is, and the thing that you and I have to take away from this, is that this is God's war. And He can simply speak anything into existence in order to carry out His plans and purposes. Now, may I also interject a thought here. Throughout most of the beginning stages of this tribulation, these words speak about men doing battle with men. And yes, they were demon-possessed in most cases because they have the 666. But still, most of the misery that we've been reading about is brought on by the hands of men fighting against men. But here in these particular words that we just read, we see that these demons are not being disguised within the forms and the flesh of men. But they are beginning to come out from their hidden realms. Right now, we can't see the demons that are around us each day. We're probably very glad that we can't. We would probably be so afraid. But here, they will start to make themselves visible. They come out of those hidden realms showing themselves openly as demons as they attack the men and the women there as those scorpions. And here is Apollyon, this angel of the abyss, a great and powerful demon. As he leads the hordes of these locust creatures out from the abyss, those were demons. I have no doubt. Those were demons. Actual demons. Not people. Not actual locusts. So, for one of the first times in the history of men, men are able to actually see demons with their natural eyes. As I said a moment ago, oh, they are going to be so afraid because that is a fearsome sight that's being described here by the Apostle John. And the suffering that's going to come upon the people as they're stung by these locusts, it will be so difficult for them 
they will beg to die, but they can't. At least not quickly. Sure, it's said that they will suffer for five months. I thought as I read that, that's nothing compared to what they're going to suffer soon as they are thrown into the abyss with those demons at the end of the, the great war that's about ready to take place. They'll suffer forever, eternally. Now, may I pause here and go back and say, what brought us to this point where these demons are flying all around, stinging people and bringing about just total chaos on the planet? What brought us to these woes that are being poured out? Now, I've said on other occasions that the period of the seven-year tribulation is not concurrent with the way the chapters are arranged here in the book of Revelation. You'll recall that shortly after the rapture, as we begin in chapter 6, Jesus began to break open these seals of the scroll. And that was when this great dragon, Satan, and his helper beasts, they began to rise to power. There in chapter 13, the Antichrist and his demons, they began to set up their evil kingdoms of of the one world religion that's spoken about there in chapter 17 and then call there the great harlot. And then also at the same time the Antichrist is setting up his financial empire in this, and this one world government there in Babylon the Great described in chapter 18. But all the while that that's taking place God is ever and always at work also because as this evil begins to rise on the face of the earth and churn in chapter 14, God sends out the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And then also back in chapter 11, we read where God sends out these two powerful witnesses to minister there for three and a half years there in Jerusalem. And from all of those that ministry that's taking place, Scripture tells us that men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue on the earth will begin to turn their hearts to Christ in great multitudes. And then while all those things are taking place, Jesus continues to open each of those seals of the scroll. And powerful angels continue to blow their trumpet and pour out bowls of wrath upon the people and upon the nations of the world. And the pictures, actual stars falling from the sky, killing people and killing wildlife and killing sea life, and on and on, burning up the land. And all of those things, though, as we have been studying all that's taking place, all of those things are working towards a culmination that we're going to be studying here today and then next week in chapter 16 and 19 of this great battle, the Battle of Armageddon. Let's go back again and read some of these words in chapter 9, beginning in verse 12. The first woe is past, and behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now remember, Euphrates goes right by where Babylon used to be. And it goes right near Baghdad today. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they could kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 
And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone, and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouth. For the power of the horse is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. Can you just try to imagine that imagery of what John is looking at? The rest of mankind who were not killed by those plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries or their immoralities or their thefts. You know, as we read these words, we can clearly see that everything really is being brought to this last stand, this final last stand. The one world religion and the one world government and that financial empire of the Antichrist cannot continue to succeed in any form with all of this destructive force being thrown at them as God pours out these hailstones that weigh a hundred pounds and plagues and all of this killing billions of people, poisoning the water supplies, destroying the land. And don't fail to note This is what God is viewing as He's watching all of this take place. As all of this is poured out, people stubbornly refuse to repent. Now, throughout most all of the Bible, we know that God uses suffering to bring us to repentance, to cause us to change, turn our hearts to Him. And yes, a lot of that will take place in the tribulation, but many, many more than than do, do not turn their hearts to Him. And here we see, even with the worst of suffering, that these people refuse to repent. For those who have taken the 666 on their forehead and on their hands, that's most likely some form of blasphemy. And the one thing we know about blasphemy is once a person has done that, they cannot turn back. It's a step that they've taken that's too far. And here we hear the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent. Over in chapter 16, they have some similar words. Listen to this. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. It says that the people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. With people suffering in these horrific ways, and with the Antichrist finding that his financial empire, that Babylon the Great, was crumbling all around him, and all of those wars and rumors of wars that's spoken about in Matthew 24, taking place all over the earth, they begin to consolidate themselves down and move towards one big and final battle. And it's at this point that all the eyes of the world will begin to be focused upon just one nation of the world, Israel. Before church, we looked at a map 
of all of the land of the earth. And we looked at how tiny Israel is. But as these days come to a point, all eyes are going to become more and more focused on this one tiny nation. Think about that. Think about that for a moment. With all that's taking place, with the Antichrist, with his one world religion, and it uh, controlling for a while, but then beginning to falter, and then Babylon the Great, this huge one world government with its financial empires, all of it begins to collapse. What becomes the focus? The focus of the Antichrist, the focus of all of the leaders of the world. It's this one tiny strip of land that occupies such a very, very small part of the world. Israel. And so we need to ask ourselves why. Why would that be so? Why do people hate Israel so much and blame Israel so much for their suffering that they will risk everything in this one big and final battle of Armageddon. Again, these scriptures say that a lot of nations will gather for this battle. And they are all focusing on this one tiny strip of land. Powerful nations of the world. Most Bible commentators believe that the Gog and Magog that are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel is the nation of Russia. And there it's spoken of this army from the north that will come in for the battle. Now they're all gathering there at the Euphrates. You recall there in verse 16 that there was another army, 200 million horsemen. And that's assumed to be the armies of the east from China. Because even now, China, and for many years, China has boasted of having over 200 million men in their army. So as we read about these armies gathering there, amassing near the Euphrates River, near Babylon, because remember now that is the power control center that the Antichrist has adopted. They're poised there for an invasion. An invasion of this tiny little strip of land of Israel. And they're going to meet there on this plain of Megiddo. Just a small strip of land, but they'll all meet there for this final battle. And again, as I said, I've pondered the question of why this last great battle will take place, why it has to take place, who will be the participants in it, who will be fighting against whom. Remember we read in an earlier message where blood will come to the horse's uh, stomachs all through the plain of Megiddo. That's a lot of people dying. Why are they there? Who is it that comes to fight? Are they fighting against Israel? Israel doesn't have an army big enough to need 200 million men and then the armies from the north. Who are all of these people fighting? I have to confess to you that God has not given me a very clear answer on all of that as yet. But what I do understand to be true is this. By this point in time in the tribulation... God has been pouring out such painful wrath and suffering continually and He is thwarting the plans and the purposes of not only the Antichrist but all of His worldwide allies 
causing them all to want to do whatever it takes to try to bring an end to God's onslaught against them. Because throughout all of these sufferings of wrath that have been poured out upon them, they come to know that it's coming from God. And they want to try to do anything to end this onslaught against them. You recall when we studied about the two witnesses, how frustrated the leaders of the world were because these two witnesses were able to bring terrible plagues upon them, uh, control the weather, but they weren't able to do anything to stop these two witnesses. So they're frustrated. Frustrated. And in my own mind, and these I simply came up with from my own thoughts, but there's going to be other factions that are going to join into this battle because you'll recall that demons, and there are powerful demons all over the earth right now, and there will be then, they do not necessarily get along with one another. There is no love within the hearts of demons, and they're going to be fighting against one another. And so if a strong demon controls a particular area of the world, which it might be in South America or in America here or up in Europe, they'll be bringing their battles, their soldiers, to the battle, each trying to protect and enlarge their power and position. I would also think that the Muslim world will be a major force within that battle because they boast of a billion and a half Muslims. Why would they be in the battle? Because they even now hate and want to destroy everyone who is not of their own. And so they'll be there in the battle. But listen, more than for any other reason, Satan himself, Satan and his demons, all of their earthly counterparts that they control, they hate God. That's the reason that they're coming to this battle. They hate God. And they want once and for all to defeat God and to defeat anyone who is on God's side in this battle. And you recall that has been Satan's desire since he rose to power, since he fell from grace and rose to power. He wanted to elevate himself above God. But because they hate God, they also hate everyone who is on God's side. Jesus told us in the Gospel that people will hate you and me anyone that follows after Him. And it'll be for seemingly no reason. Even now, you and I know as we watch the media, Christians, whether it be us or not, Christians all around, certainly in America and then all around the world, the liberal world despises us. But listen, even more than them despising us, they hate Israel. The world hates Israel. And they hate the Jewish people. And we don't really know why, except this. Satan knows that these are God's people. And so he brings hatred for the Jewish people. But again, behind it all, the real hatred is towards God Himself. And so as these powerful forces gather for this battle, their real desire is to fight against God and to try to defeat Him. And unfortunately for them, they really will be able to actually meet God 
face to face on that battlefield. They will. And woe be to them. In chapter 19, and we'll be talking more about it next week, we read that it will be Jesus Himself who will lead the armies of God into battle against those demonic forces that are gathered there in that plain of Megiddo. In that battle, Jesus is going to come riding in on a white horse. He'll be accompanying His armies on their white horses. And He'll have the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords emblazoned on His robe and on His thigh. And in those final moments, there will really only be two sides. Everything will be reduced down to just two sides in the conflict. The armies of the world, the flesh, and the devil fighting against the armies of God. And may I say to you, I personally look forward to that battle. I look forward to being a part of that battle. Well, why don't we pause there because next we have to enter into this battle of Armageddon and I'll want to do that next week. Let's pray.